Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you're here with me today. My name is Sarah, and I am the creator and host of Sober Gratitudes. I once was an active alcoholic, and after decades of failed attempts to control my drinking, I finally reached out for help. Letting others help me is why I'm here today, living a life I never thought possible. The suffering of my past was the catalyst I needed to find recovery and be receptive to healing. I created this podcast out of the desire to recover out loud and, with the help of my guests, show you how a better life is possible after addiction. Whether you have been here before or you are a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a moment to write a review on Apple Podcasts so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. Together, we can help those in need. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Thank you again for dropping in today, and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Sober Gratitudes is a podcast dedicated to spreading the hope in long-term sobriety. It is an inclusive show that does not represent or promote any specific programs of recovery. When my guests and I share about what keeps us sober, we are referring to exclusively our own unique experiences. Our goal is to provide inspiration for others who are struggling with addiction-related disorders and want to get sober. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sober Gratitudes. I'm so grateful that you joined me to listen today to some of my ramblings here. Well, I hope it's not rambling to you, but there is a purpose for this episode today. And the purpose is to discuss getting through the holidays when you're in early sobriety or at any point in your recovery for that matter. I was thinking about having a bunch of guests come on over the next couple of months because the holidays separate from a pandemic in early sobriety can be really tough. And now we have this crazy epidemic going on and we have to deal with that in addition to either getting sober or staying sober through the holidays. And I know a lot of you probably are doing something different for the holidays. We are. My family decided to just stay home and not travel and visit with people. We just feel it's still too risky in the state that we're living in. So my husband and I are thinking of some different things to do with our children. They're older, they're teenagers. So who knows? It might be just a day of jammies and movies and um, eating a lot, <laughs> but we won't be drinking alcohol. That's for sure. I wanted to do this because I don't think about alcohol anymore when the holidays come around. And then I thought, you know what? There's a lot of people who probably still do. 
And so I felt compelled to just talk about my experience in early sobriety when I was getting sober through the holidays. And it wasn't easy. So I want to just tell you all that I feel your pain. I feel the discomfort. I know I know what it feels like. I've been there. It's really hard. Some of you may have tools in place and you're feeling safe and secure going into the holidays. Some of you may be completely freaking out. And whatever your feelings are right now, whatever your experiences are, it's normal. Everyone has different experiences. So I can't really speak to anybody else except for my own. I got sober in, well, in the spring of 2012. And then I had a couple of relapses, just one day relapses over the summertime. And then at the end of August, that's when um, something finally clicked. And it was, my last drunk was August 19th, 2012. And I got so inebriated that I'm shocked I didn't die. I drank because of some traumatic event that occurred. And my only, I still hadn't done the work in my program to do some soul searching and, you know, inventory work and things of that nature. So I was really, I had no idea how to handle anything. I mean, even if it, you know, the slip I had before that major slip was, I don't even remember why I had that slip, but I drank my husband's six pack of beer that was in the fridge that just sat there. He's not an alcoholic, so he could have alcohol in the refrigerator and it would just sit and sit and sit. And it would always drive me crazy because I was busy with, you know, secretly refilling my wine bottles, which were in the back behind everything. And I would refill them with water. And my husband had no idea you know, he, he had no clue what I was doing. And so the slip I had in, it was July in 2012. So I had a couple months in the program of, um, recovery that I work and I, I don't know exactly. I can't really remember exactly why I guzzled that six pack one afternoon, but I think it had something to do with a chronic illness that I have that um, it's called Meniere's disease. And it, it, you can Google it. It's, it's this very, un, it's a disease that, well, it's not really a disease. It's a, a vestibular disorder. So it, it attacks my inner ear and causes like extreme vertigo and vomiting and brain fog and dizziness. And I, have had it since I was 21 and I was told to not drink because of this condition that it would make my symptoms worse. And I was like, mm, yeah, fuck you. I'm going to still drink. And I did for the next 20 some odd years and it never, you know, helped my symptoms. Drinking would just make 
it would numb the symptoms and then I wake up the next morning hungover and I would feel really that, you know, I would feel hungover and throwing up and awful and so full of self-loathing, but also my, my symptoms were, had escalated because it just messed with my insulin levels. And for some reason that impacted my symptoms. Well, I think in July, my first slip, I was, I was symptomatic and really frustrated. And my, my go-to for coping and managing with it for 20 plus years was to drink. So I, I was alone. I remember I was alone in the house. I don't remember if my husband took my son somewhere for a hike or something of that nature. I just really can't remember, but I do remember just chugging that six pack and I was really ashamed and I didn't tell anyone about it because I thought, cause I, by then I was like, I really want to stay stopped. Like I was 39 years old. <clears throat> I really, I was motivated in that. I, I felt like really disgusted with myself that I could not control my drinking and I was keeping it such a secret and I was tired of keeping that secret. And I just felt like it was it, by then it was really taking over my life and I had, no, I really had no control over it anymore. And by control, I mean, I could not stop. I just couldn't stop once I started drinking so that was like the last couple of years before I turned 39 where my active alcoholism really just picked up exponentially after I had tried to quit on my own for four months. I'm kind of going all over the place right now, but we're going to get to the holidays. I promise you. So essentially I, I used to call like, Oh, my symptoms were my triggers. Um, the symptoms from my Meniere's disease, that, that was a trigger or, you know, that person was an asshole, that was a trigger or, you know, I felt depressed, so that was a trigger. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that I just, I don't really say trigger anymore. I just, I just think back to what life was like eight years ago or eight and a half years ago when I just didn't know how to handle life at all. Whether it was good or bad, anything, I didn't know how to go to parties without drinking. I didn't know how to socialize without drinking. I didn't know how to get through hard times without drinking. I, it was just so much a part of my life. And it was so, it was a, it was, a, you know, so hard to justify wanting to stop because it was, you know, our society says that, gosh, you know, well, I don't need to tell the, the listeners, I don't need to tell you guys that, you know, it's romanticized drinking, drinking wine, especially for women. It's romanticized. It's like, okay, this is when we're going to relax. This is a nice way to get through when the kids are driving us crazy. This is how to deal with, you know, difficult um, relationships. Um, and it's, advertised as being okay. I mean, we see it everywhere. I mean, you know, the, the huge mommy wine drinking culture, and it's just, it's a drug that is acceptable to overuse. And so much so that it's become normalized. And so it made it that much harder to stop drinking because 
you know, everyone would assume I was pregnant because I wasn't drinking. So what I had to do in the beginning was because I was still struggling with calling myself an alcoholic, like giving myself that label and really understanding what alcoholism is. I, what I knew for sure in the beginning was that I had a doctor tell me in 1996 1995, I think, that I could not drink alcohol with my Meniere's disease because it would make it worse. And let me tell you, sidebar, it did make it worse. And to today, I have lost almost all of my hearing in my right ear. I wear hearing aids in both ears because my condition did go bilateral. The drinking did not help. I took terrible care of myself. Um, there's no cure for this condition. So there's no room for me to blame my drinking all on the how it impacted and worsened this condition. It is, it's a progressive condition and there are ways to help myself feel better. And when I got sober, that's when I really started to take care of myself and take care of this, this chronic um, illness that I have. And I live more comfortably because I First of all, I can hear better and I don't have to deal with the symptoms that come with this particular condition. But this podcast is not about Meniere's disease. It's about getting through the holidays when we're early in sobriety. Or, you know, early is a relative term, right? And I don't know who is working a program or not. I don't know how people, I don't know how any of you are getting sober or staying sober or what. Um, I don't know what your life looks like right now, but for me, what my life looked like when I first stopped um, and after I had my second relapse, I had the fear of God in me. Like I just, I don't want to say the fear of God. I had, I had the fear of the devil in me. Like I just, I knew that I had no control over my drinking. Like I couldn't, I had my willpower and I had, I was stubborn. Like I've had people like call me very willful, like people that um, I've known throughout the course of my life call me really stubborn. And um, it's helped in my sobriety in some ways. And I'll get to that in a little bit, but I just was so, so pissed at myself that I couldn't control my drinking. I really wanted to be able to drink normally. It was clear that I couldn't. I tried very hard. And after that second relapse, when I drank like eight gin and tonics with no tonic in it and puked my guts out in a parking lot behind a restaurant, I woke up the next morning and I realized that I was, I was either going to die or, and leave my children motherless, or I was going to be sent to an institution because I literally thought I was going insane. Um, or I'd be arrested because I had dodged so many bullets prior to that. And um, so after that, I decided that, you know, I kind of loop back to what I was saying a few minutes ago is that I was struggling in the beginning with what the definition of alcoholism was. 
and how it applied to me. And I just didn't understand myself. I was mad at myself. I was deep down. I didn't want to be living such a uh, difficult life filled with inner turmoil and inner conflict and collision with my own psyche and my own sense of self and self-worth. So, so in, before I could figure that out and get myself some help with therapy and the program that I got sober in and I still use to this day, and I don't promote on this podcast, but I think most of you know what program I use. Um, it is a 12-step program. And so I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't tell many people at all that I was committing to staying stopped and I was committed to doing whatever it would take. This was by August 20th of 2012. I was, I was literally on my knees in in a recovery room begging a woman to please save me for myself because I have no control. So, so when I came, when I approached the holidays, like, you know, well, September came around and that was okay. And then October with Halloween, I usually always got highly intoxicated going trick or treating with my kids. Uh, and so I, and then that Thanksgiving came around and then my birthday comes around and then Christmas comes around and then New Year's comes around. So, and a lot of that time, uh, my family would spend with friends and family and some, most of my family and a lot of my friends, I think at that point, I only told one friend that I was identifying myself, identifying as an alcoholic and, and she couldn't even believe it. And she's known me forever. <laughs> and um, that's how good of a secret keeper I was. So I had to tell people that I was really suffering from my Meniere's disease symptoms. And I had to commit to cooling the jets with drinking because I was so uncomfortable. That was not a lie. It was a, it was a truth. And I was confident that that was a reason why I shouldn't be drinking. I wasn't confident about anything else at that point with regards to my alcoholism, why I would drink this way, why I, I had such sick thinking. And by sick, I mean just really hard on myself and really judgmental, but in a quiet, secretive way of other people, but mostly of myself. I felt really terrible about myself. And so I, I needed to sort that out privately. And so if I were to go out and start the holidays, you know, with, with friends and family that I spent the holidays with and say, I'm an alcoholic. And then them being like, what? And because I was so good at keeping a secret. Like I would drink heavily before I would go to parties. Nobody knew, nobody knew. And then I would just, you know, I was so good at just drinking normally at functions, but people didn't realize that I had the extra sash in my bag. I had drank beforehand. And then after the, the, engagement, I would always go home and drink more 
Like I had no stop button. So, so for the first round of holidays, I really, and it was for many, actually for many years, I, I had to commit to simply saying, you know, I'm not drinking because it's not good for my health in terms of my vestibular disorder. And, um, that it was just easier to do that because I, it took, I had to sort out a lot of shit. I had to do a lot of therapy. Uh, I had to go to a lot of 12 step meetings. I went on a lot of 12 step retreats with women and I needed to do a lot of soul searching and I was changing so much and I was feeling so much better, but it was really, it was really jostling, you know, my, the, my, my relationships because I was changing and, um, the, some friends that I had, I, you know, started to see less of because some of them knew I wasn't drinking and, and gosh, I know what it's like to be a drinker and invite somebody to a party and they say, no, I'm not drinking. And then I, I would feel really self-conscious. Meanwhile, <laughs> they're not drinking, had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with them. Um, but so that was how I got through the holidays for a long time and for any occasion for that matter. And there were some people I just, I felt it would cause more drama and chaos if I were to explain that I'm an alcoholic. And I needed to get to a place where I felt really secure in my recovery and had all my ducks in a row, like felt really good about my, my relationship with my husband and my children. And, you know, gosh, I had to raise children while I was getting sober and dealing with a lot of past issues, um, that I never really dealt with and, and get a handle of, on my mental health, which I tried to in the past, but I was always drinking while I was prescribed antidepressants. So it, it was kind of silly that I took antidepressants while I was still drinking because it really, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications are not effective. And I know this for a fact, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but I've been to enough, I've been to enough psychologists and psychiatrists and doctors and read enough to know that, and I'm sure most of you know that antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications really don't work when you're drinking drinking the way that I was. So I just stopped taking medication altogether. And I I continued to use alcohol to self-medicate. So while I needed my early recovery to be private, and private by mean like I had to you know, deal with it and process it on my own, my own daily life, working with professionals, working with people who had gotten sober 
before me in my 12-step program and who could bring me through hard days because they knew what I was feeling and experiencing, you know, that was, that was instrumental in getting to where I am today. It, and so I had to be really careful with who I shared this information with, because there is a lot of misunderstanding about alcoholism and I don't fault anyone or point fingers or <laughs> at anybody. I just know that it's, that is what society is. Mostly it's, it's a, we live in a society that glamorizes drinking and whether or not you have a problem with drinking, it's very easy to just drink and get loaded and nobody bats an eye at it. You know, it's, it's, it's more normal to, for people to comfortably joke about somebody getting shit faced at a party and puking all over their front lawn and passing out their front lawn in a neighborhood and laughing about that. But what's not normalized is for somebody like me to say, Hey, I am sober and I'm so grateful that I'm sober because my life is so much better now. And that's why I felt compelled almost a year ago to start the podcast, Sober Gratitudes podcast, to be a part of this community. And there is, there's a huge movement out there. We all know that are trying to work on changing attitudes and perceptions of drinking and changing what normal looks like and ending stigmas and helping people understand that, you know, like sexual orientation, like I didn't ask to have alcoholism. I didn't ask to have depression. I didn't ask to have anxiety. You know, I didn't, <laughs> you know, one day say, oh, gee, I, I'd love to just start a podcast and say that I'm an alcoholic and help other people. Like, I truly love doing this. I get so much satisfaction out of offering this podcast as a platform for people to share their stories, to share the hope and recovery, to share how life is so much easier for those of us who, who don't have that, that off button or who think they are, you know, maybe loving drinking a little too much and need to cool the jets it's hard to cool the jets in the society that we live in, you know, especially now, like I really, I don't have a good finger on the pulse of how much people are drinking, except that I do read articles and know of data, you know, of, of what's been going on during the pandemic, you know, during the pandemic months compared to last year's similar months that drinking has escalated and, um, I'm so much a part of the sober community that all I really know is what's going on in the sober community and the recovery community online and in my real life. So 
I've said a lot. I don't know if this has helped anybody, but I'll tell you right now that I had to keep things really simple when I was heading into occasions where people were used to seeing me drinking. And I had and I had a legitimate reason why I couldn't drink. And that was my Meniere's disease. So that's what I said. That's what my husband and that and that was a truth. And it relieved me of needing to explain to people and probably make people feel really uncomfortable in these social situations. But, um, you know, during, during that time, I would have to sneak off into bathrooms a lot and call people who had gotten sober before me. And, um, I had to spend a lot of time with the little kids in the basement away from where the alcohol was because I was white knuckling it. Uh, I always had to have a seltzer in my hand. I always had to have something in my hand to avoid being asked, would you like another drink? I just, that's how I did it. And I, I really wanted to stay sober and I, I did whatever it, it took after that second slip in August of 2012, I, I wanted to live. I wanted to be a good mom on the outside. I think, I, I think people saw a good mom and I do think I was a good mom, but I, I knew I wasn't the kind of mom I felt my kids deserved and they sure as hell didn't ask to be born. So I really felt you know, a part of my getting sober was to be, a, to be a better mother. Um, and that's why I love being a part of like the communities on Instagram and the communities, you know, on social media and outside of social media and in the r- real world of mothers getting sober and moms who are trying to stay sober with young kids. I'd love to get involved in those groups because I know how effing hard it is. Um, but I did, I did reach a place of, I, I can't live this way anymore. And I needed to listen to every suggestion out there and, and be honest and say, I'm supposed to be going here tomorrow and I'm scared to death. What do I do? Tell me what to do. One thing that I actually came up with on my own was to go to functions with a different mindset because every function that I would go to was where am I going to drink? How, where is the drink? Where I want to make sure I don't, you know, get, I don't lose sight of where the alcohol is. So I would go into these functions with a new mindset of let me focus on individuals and try to get them, get to know them better and focus on them. So I would do that. It was like homework for myself. I would go to any function where alcohol was served. I would have 
my plan. I would have my phone by me so I could call or get calls from people who knew I was at a party with alcohol. Um, and I would just focus on people. I would kind of like bullseye people and be like, oh, that person, I've never really talked to that much because whenever I did talk to them, I was busy kind of just talking about myself and drinking. So let me go to that person and find out three things. And then I would go to another person and find out three things about that person. And then I felt like when I left the party, I really, I felt so good. I, I felt this just really warm sensation because I found out information about these people that was 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 really great. Like they shared with me parts of themselves and I feel like I got to know them better. Whether or not, that, not they asked me questions back, I didn't care because I was trying to save my life. <laughs> I was trying to keep myself from not drinking. And unknowingly, I was actually working the steps <laughs> by looking outside of myself and r- realizing how people experience me and had and used to perhaps experience me in the past of not being very friendly perhaps maybe or moody um I think I could fake being joyful very easily especially once I got a couple drinks in me but if I was moody I was I was really hard for me not to show that like if I felt resentful towards somebody it was really hard for me to hide that. I think I had very, very severe body language. I'm fully aware of that now. And, um, now that I, that I'm honest with others and myself, I I can actually ask like my husband, I'm like, like he'll say, he's like, are you okay? You seem crabby. I'm like, do I really? Okay. Explain to me what that looks like. (laughs) Like, what am I doing that makes it seem like I'm crabby because I'm not crabby. But if I am like, my body language appears to be crabby, I want to know so I can change that. Because I don't want strangers or family members, extended family members or friends to think that I'm crabby when I'm not. So I've spent a lot of my sobriety changing myself. And in changing myself, new people have come into my lives and relationships I've had have healed because first of all, I'm not, I'm not like hungover or I'm not crabby because I'm not getting a drink or I'm not feeling resentful towards somebody. I'm just being me. And I'm now I'm in a place in my life where I listen a lot more and I, I don't talk that much because, well, some people might beg to differ. <laughs> Those of you who know me well listening to this could say, wait a minute, Sarah. <laughs> you talk more than anyone I know. Um, but I guess my point is, is that in early sobriety, I had to work really, really hard at not thinking about myself and not thinking about how I wanted to drink and change my thinking and thinking about, okay, there are 15 people here at this party. How many of them do I know really well? Who do I need to get to know better? 
who do I want to get? I mean, it was, it was, I was wanting to get to know people better. And some days it was easier than others. Now, this holiday season might be really different for, well, it's going to be different. I mean, it's, it is mostly for everyone. I would, I would imagine it's going to be different, at least in the state that I, in the town that I'm living in. Um, there could be a lot of people who are, who are able to be together, like with extended family, because they're with them more on a more daily basis. And that's great. That's, that's wonderful. And, and I am just, I'm happy for you. But if you're in a state of trying to get sober with people that you don't see every day and who are expecting you to be drinking, maybe try, you know, ask people for suggestions who have sober time about how to get through parties without drinking. And, you know, the first time I got through a party without picking up, I was on cloud nine. I was on top of the world. It's like, thank God I did it. And then I got home and I went to bed and I slept well, and I didn't wake up with those awful heart palpitations and puking and feeling like I was going to die. And then knowing in a couple hours, I was going to wake up totally hungover and miserable for the entire day, praying, well, please don't pick up again. Don't pick up again. I mean, some of you listening, I know, get it. You know, that hamster wheel, like every day, like Groundhog, Groundhog's Day, trying so hard to just say, okay, today's, today's it. Today's the end. Today's the end. But then picking up again and I know how hard that is. I do. I lived that way for a very long time. And I never, ever, ever imagined I would wake up every day and not have the desire to drink. This morning I woke up and I had no desire to drink. And I was grateful to be alive. And I thought about where I can be useful to others. I haven't forgotten things that I have to do. I am now three years on the right kind of medication for my mental health condition. I am honest with myself about my feelings and with others. My husband and I have worked hard over these years in our relationship and we feel really good about how we parent our children. And it's been worth it. Those, you know, functions or those holidays that I had to get through in the beginning, I had a solution. I had, I just, I just isolated that one party and thought about that one party alone. And I had my tasks and plan and stuck to it as best as I could, as long as I didn't pick up. And I just took it one party at a time. I took one function at a time, one holiday at a time. And I remember when I quit, I thought, oh my gosh, when my kids get married, how I'm not going to be able to toast 
you know, with champagne. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I got sober when my oldest was eight and I was, I was worried about my wedding or their weddings. <laughs> I don't even know if my kids are going to get married. You know, they're teenagers now. I have no idea what their futures look like. But I know that that's what we do as alcoholics. We project and we think that alcohol needs to be a part of everything to make it better, to make it more manageable. You know, for me, I just, it, it was a hamster wheel I had to get off of and get off of fast. So I'm rooting for you. This, this year is going to be tough, but it doesn't have to be that tough. There are, are things that we can do to take our minds off of alcohol. There's lots of different things we can do. There's lots and lots of different meetings out there that are on Zoom that we can go to. And if you are interested in knowing where all these meetings and functions can be found or want to connect with me about like how you're struggling, I love hearing from people. Just email me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you. Or if you have really great tips on staying sober in the ho- through the holidays or have great new ideas about how to do it during a pandemic, email me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com. And I'd love to have you on as a guest because that's what I'm going to focus on for the next couple of months are getting through the holidays, getting through these months and not picking up because I want you to stay stopped. I really do because I know how it feels to be stuck in Groundhog's Day thinking things might be different this time. Oh, it'll, it'll just be different, but it never was. It never was for me. And now I have, now I have a life I really never, ever dreamed possible. And I get to do things like this podcast and impact people's lives. And it's turned into something more than I ever expected it to be. And I never went in on this to try to make money and I'm not making money on my podcast. It's not, that wasn't my plan. I wanted to do this to connect with you and to help you and to build a community and have this community be a part of the, the greater community at large, that the sober community at large to help end stigmas to help individuals get through difficult times, to be a resource, to provide hope, to show you that there is so much hope in recovery when we are willing to do the work, when we're willing to do things that feel a little bit off and strange and ridiculous, but Now's the time to really trust your gut. What is your gut telling you about your drinking? Is your life in turmoil? 
are you in constant collision with people and institutions and ideas? Do you go to bed and secretly feel like, oh, damn it, why did I drink again? Or why did I say that to that person? Or I just can't take that I snap at my kids all the time. Why am I doing that? I'm saying that because that's how my life was. I went to bed every night with regrets. And I can honestly tell you that that is not my life at all anymore. I'm not saying it's a perfect life, but I have the tools and I know how to access those tools to handle things that used to truly baffle me. And I get to go to bed feeling really good about how my day went. And even if you have an awful day, but you go to bed and you didn't pick up, you had a fucking rocking day. I'm sorry. You have something to hold on to as being a success. So I love you all. I'm so grateful for you, my listeners, and for anyone new who's listening to this podcast for the first time. Try out some other episodes. See if you like this community. Join it. Follow me if you like it. If you don't, that's okay. There are millions of recovery podcasts out there that are fantastic. So... I hope you all have the best day of your life. I hope you don't pick up today. Find somebody who you can get to know. See where you can help somebody. Do something different today. Write down your feelings. Reach out to another person for help or just to talk to somebody who you know is struggling with something doesn't even have to be alcohol. Find out how to get out of yourself. Because that bondage of self can really take us down into these awful deep pits and lead us to drink. And today, I don't want to drink. So I'm going to do things that make me feel good and helping others makes me feel really, really good. So thanks for listening and look for upcoming episodes with sober friends of mine who um, will talk about uh, getting through the holidays and other topics. If you have a topic that you want me to discuss, please email me sobergratitudes at gmail.com. Thanks again. And I'm going to go out And as a good friend of mine always says at the end of his podcast episodes, I'm going to go out and live a life that was worth saving. And I hope you do the same thing too.